nobody teaches us how to take care of our brain and how to possibly reduce the risk of dementia or degenerative disease or reduce the risk of having altered cognitive function. And we always take that for granted when we're young. Are you ready to boost your longevity and unlock peak performance? Welcome to the Longevity and Lifestyle Podcast. I'm your host, Claudia van Berzelaga, longevity and peak performance coach. Each week, we'll explore groundbreaking science, unravel longevity secrets, share strategies to grow younger, and stay up to date with world-class health and peak performance pioneers. Everything you need to live longer, live better, and reach your fullest potential. Ready to defy aging, optimize health, and promote peak performance? Visit llinsider.com for more. My guest today is a return guest and now a dear friend, Dr. Kristen Willemeyer. Dr. Kristen is a neuroscientist and author of the book, Biohack Your Brain. She conducted her graduate research at UCLA and Cedars-Sinai Medical Center, earning MS degrees in physiological science and neurobiology, as well as a PhD in neurobiology. She also served as a postdoctoral scientist at Cedars-Sinai, focusing on neurodegenerative diseases. In her role as the director of neuroimaging research at the Amman Clinics, Dr. Willemeyer led pioneering studies, including one on the long-term effects of repetitive sub- concussive impacts in NFL players and the development of a protocol to reverse brain damage and enhance cognitive health. Kristen, welcome back onto the Longevity and Lifestyle podcast. It's such a pleasure to have you on and Oscar as well. So for (laughs) those listening, we have beautiful Oscar on also. So (laughs) hello to both of you. Well, hello. Thank you for the lovely introduction. And, you know, one of our rescue dogs, Oscar here, wanted to say hello to you and everybody (laughs) in the audience. Hello. So hello there. Hello, everyone. (laughs) So sweet. (laughs) As we were saying as well, and the pets and and animals are so important for our health and our our mental health and and, and overall well-being as well, right? So um, yeah, well, we, you know, we discussed during the pandemic, there was the highest number of people adopting pets in the home because of just the feelings of social isolation and the lack of connectedness. So um, I thought it would be fun to have Oscar make a cameo. <laughs> and we can certainly, I, I can even lead by telling you that there was a new study that was published in the Journal of Neurology that used brain imaging and looked at older adults who were experiencing social isolation and loneliness. And what the brain imaging results showed is people who are less socially active or socially connected had smaller brain volumes. And this, some of the regions, they did a regional analysis and one of the areas that had the smaller brain volume was the hippocampus, the area of the brain associated with learning and memory. So the moral of the story and Um, They do this to teach neurologists in the clinical setting the importance of asking patients, right? Are you socially connected? Are you getting out? Like, if you're socially connected, are you feeling lonely, right? Because sometimes people are out and about in the world, but they still feel lonely inside. And so pets are a way to open our hearts 
and make us feel less lonely and more connected. So I thought this would be the perfect way to start our conversation. Perfect as well. And, and, uh, you know, Oscar always loves to sit by me during a podcast. <laughs> that's so beautiful. I, he's so sweet. And then you have your new adopted dog as well, Olivia. Olivia, she's here too. Yeah, Yay. she's the baby, one year old. <laughs> so sweet. And obviously the longest running study since 1938 on longevity and happiness and longevity out of Harvard also says the importance of relationships and connection as a fundamental role for later in life. And I'm in the process of watching the Netflix series, uh, How to Live to 100. I don't know if you've seen it. I have go- not. What have you learned? Well, so the, for the episodes that I've, <laughs> oh, I've it's seen Dave, so it's far, Dave Buettner, right? Uh, yes. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. He's in uh, Okinawa and then Sardinia. And then he was uh, somewhere in California, right. actually, as well. But it's Oh, that- not Dave. It's Dan Buettner. Dan um, Buettner, I, I, yeah, a I wonderful book. Yeah, on longevity. Yes, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he, of course, part of it is that sense of community that as a person ages, that they're not just put into a nursing home, but instead they're still part, very much part of the, the community. They're seen as like a wise, knowledgeable person, respected because of that and supported by younger generations. Um, so again, it's that community and lack of isolation, um, which which totally makes sense. I mean, we are humans to have connection. And we think with this little device that we call our phone that we're more connected. Well, hey, we forget how it is in the good old days when people used to write a letter and be like, I'm going to come visit you for a week. Uh, <laughs> and on well, this, this date, right? <laughs> that, that was actually how I grew up, right? I'm a little bit older than you. Um, <laughs> and I laugh because, you know, I think I might have told you this on the last podcast, but I brought a typewriter with me to college. So that basically <laughs> tells you. We used you, to have one in the home. I know a typewriter. Oh, you yes. did? Uh, you actually know father, what that my is? My had one. I do. Oh, your father <laughs> Okay. So I brought a typewriter. Um, but it's interesting you bring up um, our little phones. And right now we've got kids who are literally glued to the phones, using them. I just read some research. Kids are using phones an average of eight hours a day. That's what the screen time is. Um, pre-pandemic, it was two to three hours. Now, post-pandemic, it's eight hours. And that's Again, facilitating the sort of isolation piece. So you're connected, but you're not physically with people. And now we're seeing this big increase in kids having mental health issues. Um, again, you know, when I grew up, it was like you go outside, you play with friends, you go play with, you play your sports, you can come in for dinner, right? We had to be out of the house. And there was no, in my house, there was no television. Like you could, I could watch an hour, but my mom was really like, no TV. You're going to be a kid. You're going to read a book. You're going to be playing sports. You're going to be connecting with the neighbors. And if you left me outside long enough, eventually I would meet people. You know, you just, (laughs) so it, it is kind of funny. We're laughing, but the phones really start to isolate people, whether it's kids or even adults right? They think they're like, we're connected and I'm connected with my family, but you actually have to be out with people, right? And you were talking about, you know, this documentary, you know, what I love about it, a lot of people live in the United States are afraid to get older because they feel like they're going to be left alone and isolated. And a lot of people do that. They put their parents in assisted living facilities and they'll go visit them. But in Dan Buettner's documentary, I'm sure he was showing that 
as people get older, they're the wise elders of the community and their kids and the grandkids come and visit them and they're taken care of. And sometimes they all live together, which is so beautiful. So sweet and so nice. And I think in communities like in Florida or in in certain neighborhoods, right? I saw going back a few years now, pre-pandemic, but my mom used to go to this gym class and there was a 90 plus year old and she was a former dancer and she was still able to kick her leg higher than I think <laughs> I've been able to but Higher than the Rockettes. Oh, let's go for you. Exactly. Yeah. She was still in her Rockettes days. I mean, wow. I'm talking to another guy. He's like, yeah, I do spinning four days a week and then I do weight training and, you know, I'm going to celebrate my 88th birthday next year. I'm like, sorry, wow. what? <laughs> this is in your mom's gym? Yeah, exactly. That's I mean, amazing. Amazing. With the dementia, she doesn't go there, unfortunately, anymore. Um, but that that was right. And I was so impressed. And I think because of that community, I mean, my my then 95, he's passed since, but my 94-year-old grandfather was just like, I'm as young as I feel at heart. And he's like, I'm not interested in speaking to older people because they just complain about their health. He's like, I focus on younger people. <laughs> You know, what's really, (laughs) what's really cute is my, uh, my grandparents on my father's side lived to 92 and 95. And I remember when my grandpa, um, retired. So he owned his own auto parts business, sold it. Um, then he became a volunteer police officer and he volunteered at the Toastmaster. So now he was 70 years old and Toastmasters is where you go and learn how to give speeches in front of an audience. And so my grandfather was doing all of this in his 80s and 90s and they'd go on cruises to see the world, just travel. And, um, you know, we really can learn a lot from our, you know, from our grandparents and great grandparents. And the reason why it's so important, and I think you and I have talked about this before, is now the average lifespan of somebody living, at least in the US, is 79 years of age. Now, you're you're telling me here your grandparents lived into their 90s, mine lived into their 90s, but then my parents both passed in their 70s. So my mom passed at 70, my dad at 78. I'm like, we're going in the wrong direction. Yeah. Yeah. Right. We're going in the wrong direction. So what is it? Yeah. We should, in theory, have all the resources and the technology and the thing, but we are poisoning ourselves. And this is what I, I, I'd love to, to, you know, look at as well with you is, you know, why is the brain deteriorating? Like, why does that happen? And then, you know, many people focus on their like cardiovascular health or like their gut health, but how many people have got a game plan down for their brain health? yet that drives the whole system. So let's talk about that, Kristen, like what, what's happening? I love that you just said that because you're talking about my favorite organ in the body, the brain, which does drive the whole system. And if, you know, the operating system isn't working appropriately, right? If the master organ that's receiving all of the signals from your external environment, right? What you see, hear, feel, touch, and then process it and tell the body what to do you're not going to be able to function appropriately. And of course, everybody can relate to Alzheimer's disease. Most people know dementia and Alzheimer's was when you start to lose your memories. Um, but why does that happen? It happens because proteins start to abnormally fold and accumulate in the brain over time. And I will share with you one of the many revelations that I learned being a scientist in a neuroimaging clinic 
was that we could use brain imaging and see what was going on in somebody's brain. And they might come to us and not be symptomatic. So their cognitive health might be intact. Um, you know, their memory is intact. They say, oh, I'm getting older. You know, maybe I, you know, can't remember where I place my keys. I'm having a senior moment. Um, but we could look at their brain image and see that there were areas of the brain that had very low blood flow. And we knew if they didn't change their behavior, that a potential Alzheimer's or dementia diagnosis was possible. And this is when I started to learn that there are these biomarkers that we can look at in the brain 10 years, 15 years before anyone has a symptom that will tell us this person is heading that way. What can we do to slow things down, possibly prevent an Alzheimer's or dementia diagnosis from happening? So, you know, we typically give those diagnoses starting around age 65 and older. But if you back calculate and you go, okay, 65 minus 15 or minus 20 years, now you're in your 40s, which is you're in your 40s. You know, I'm in my early 50s. So this is that, that time when those, <laughs> yeah, I, I just turned 51 actually. <laughs> and you know what? I always tell people my age because it's, I'm actually proud of it. It's taken me, you know, a lot of years of study to get to this point where I can speak about the brain and tell people, you know, why it's important to protect it. Um, but I also think it's important to share this information because nobody teaches us how to take care of our brain and how to possibly reduce the risk of dementia or degenerative disease or reduce the risk of having altered cognitive function. And we always take that for granted when we're young. Just to make a point on that as well, I think that there's even a lack of awareness around that it's even an option. And so when I even, you know, talk to some people about this and they're like, oh, I don't even want to know about it. Like, you know, I, I, I dread the day that I get that diagnosis and I, I just don't want to know about it. And it's like, well, actually there is prevention, right? There is the opportunity. So I'm, I'm excited to discuss that as well. So, you know, for people listening who might be like, what, I can actually do something about it. It's like, yes, you're speaking yes. to a neuroscientist as a protocol. So <laughs> we have protocols. Yes, yes, we do. But it's, it's the first part is just knowing that you can change your brain, that there is the possibility to make these changes. I always have to say the, the small caveat, if, um, a very small percentage of dementia cases are due to certain genetic mutations, right? There are certain um, sort of ancestral patterns that we see. So you could have a gene that may be responsible. But Quick for 90... That, Kristen, mm -hmm. sorry, if I just ask, is that the APOE4 gene or a different different to the APOE4? No. Okay. It's different from APOE4. Um, so there are presenilin genes. There's different genes that we can look at um, that we know we say are causative for Alzheimer's. So if you have it, um, the probability of getting it is very high. And you, you see this in families. So if your mother or father had it and they did the genetic testing and they have one of these presenilin 1 or 2, um, alpha-synuclein, there's different genes that are have been implicated in um, causing Alzheimer's, but the ApoE4 alleles and the variants, they just increase or decrease the risk of getting Alzheimer's just because you have the variant doesn't mean you will get Alzheimer's. So what is great about that is if you do do the ApoE 
Which for done, allele yeah. testing. I'm sure you've done. Do you, got a single copy. Yeah. And you my, do have a single copy. But it, my mother doesn't have a copy and she has a dementia. And we did the analysis with Dale Bredesen, <sighs> Dr. Bredesen, and hers is mainly due to lack of HRT and, and several head trauma incidents. Interesting. So interesting. You bring up the head trauma. It is why I have been a passionate advocate of people taking care of their brain health if they've played a collision-based sport even if they've done it in their youth, like myself, I was a competitive equestrian. I have fallen off hundreds of times. Um, you can hear I speak fluently and my cognitive capacity is currently intact. But um, when you have head trauma, sometimes it can cause damage to the brain um, that, you know, over time, certain things we can't change, right? So there's a reversibility to some things, but an irreversibility to others, right? If I shear and damage neurons, um, I can't repair them, um, but I might be able to grow more blood vessels around them to make sure they're still well oxygenated and nourished. Um, I can still help create new neural connections. So if there's an area of the brain that's damaged, the brain um, can undergo what's called neuroplasticity and make a single neuron can make up to 10,000 connections with its neighbor. So if it gets damaged, the brain has the compensatory process to be able to make other connections. So I think that's the part we want to highlight. Like the brain throughout your lifespan has this ability to be plastic, right? So you can make new connections throughout the brain. And then there's very specific regions where we can still grow new neurons, which is phenomenal. And I think that's why we, and I know you've talked about this on other podcasts with other scientists and doctors, it's revolutionary and it's changing our field because now we can look at the brain in a completely different way and say, wow, we, there are things we can do to protect it. There's, there's sort of a certain reversibility to, let's say some of the symptoms you might be having, we might be able to preserve network connections and slow down the brain aging process and help preserve some of the brain volume changes that sort of naturally uh, or prevent, I would say, some of the brain volume changes we might naturally see with aging by our dietary and lifestyle habits. Mm -hmm. Which is so exciting. Yeah. Question for you, and I'm going to backtrack. So your mom has no copies of the APOE4. Correct. Very, and you have one. I have one from my father. Yeah, yeah. One from your father. And did your father do the analyses? Uh, he, has he done it since? Um, I think we've been so focused on my mother. Your um, mom, right. <laughs> with the dementia. Um, I mean, obviously it has to have come from him, right? Okay. Yeah, I was wondering if yeah. he had the one or two copies. But your dad's doing well and he's, well, he's cognitively. Five, yeah. And yeah, he's, but he's yeah. cognitively yeah. intact. So he is. Yeah. A shining example that you could still have those two copies and be. I think he has one, one, one copy, right? So one um, or one or yeah, two maybe copies. Two, that's true. I actually, I'm not 100 yeah. sure, but yeah. So, but it's actually interesting. I must ask him if he's got one or two. But it is an example, and I think it's just being aware of what the right lifestyle choices are, which we need to dig in. You need to share with my audience, like what what are the things to look out for, but. I guess a question I want to ask just off of this is that if with modern diets and lifestyles, if the average person, right, <laughs> that existed, 
if the average person were to not do any preventative measures and just have the average diet and the average stress levels and the lack of sleep and all the other things that we do to ourselves, is it inevitable that mm, cognitive de decline will continue as we're seeing? You bring up an interesting question. So I think if average person can have a lifespan to 79 years of age, because at least I, I don't know what the UK numbers are, but so let's just say 78, 79, 80. So, yeah. <laughs> we're, we're actually seeing more centenarians, which is very exciting. It's probably because of the longevity community. And thanks to wonderful people like you who are really spreading the word about the importance of brain health. And when you take care of your brain health, you extend your health span and your lifespan. Um, but your question, so somebody can go through their whole life and do nothing and stay cognitively intact. But what I might ask them is, and again, I've come from a psychiatric clinic, right? I've, I've worked in psychiatry and I've you know, one of my mentors was the head of neurology over at Cedar sinai Medical Center. So I've sort of had, had a foot in both worlds. And what I found is most people as they age start to struggle with mental health issues, anxiety, depression, inability to focus. Um, is it clinical? No, it might not reach the point where there's a clinical diagnosis. Sometimes you have to have these things for a certain period of time to be able to get the diagnoses. But if you're struggling with a mental health issue, um, that's a brain issue. And imagine if you take care of your brain health using some of the foundational principles we're talking about, you might be able to better regulate your emotions and you won't have to deal with, you know, anxiety, depression, inability to focus, um, having those senior moments that people start to have when they, you know, cross the Rubicon of 50 or 60, right? I, I always hear about, you know, people having their senior moments. And here I am 51. I just read a recent paper where they called 55, like older adults. And I'm like, wait a minute. I'm, 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 I'm actually getting into that category. Not That's a little world. scary. Like, yeah. Give me a hundred. And then we get to an older. We've got to reframe. <laughs> I know yeah. I used to tell patients in the clinic, I'm like, you're not allowed to say you're old until you're 85. Like, you know, 65 is the new 40. Um, but what I would just say to your audience is that the more that you start to embrace a brain healthy lifestyle and weave it into everything from the things that you eat to the things that you drink. So what you're consuming to what's in your environment, to how much you sleep, to how much you exercise, like how many of these things can we help um, optimize so that you have the greatest ability to have the, the long health span and lifespan um, and reduce your chance of having to go to the doctor because we... <laughs> In the clinic, we also like to say going to the doctor can be very expensive. It's expensive to see a psychiatrist, especially if you're going to do it weekly. The medications are expensive and have side effects. Um, having to be put in an assisted living facility can cost anywhere from ten to $12,000 a month. So you know, it's a really interesting way to shift your perspective. Uh, and I'm speaking to you who's very financially literate. You're coming from the fight, you know, you come from investment banking. Investing in your brain health pays dividends. And that could be later in life, not having to go through, um, you know, dealing with 
the, the doctors and the potential medical expenses you can have. So, you know, you can look at it from that perspective as well. Um, but again, I, I will say if you do nothing, you know, to support your brain health, just sort of live your life the way you want and don't sort of proactively address it. Um, you probably just have a higher chance of, you know, dementia, diseases of aging, you know, the brain volume changes as we age. As I've written in my book, um, by the time we hit the age of 40, brain volume starts to decrease anywhere from five to 10% per decade. And what that means is you just start to lose neurons over time. Your brain's not in this active growth phase like it is when you're younger, um, which is why when you're a t- when you're a teen and you're crazy and you're bungee jumping and you're playing football and you know you're knocking your head around, but you can you get knocked down and you get up again, like that song says. Um, it seems like kids are Teflon and their brains are super resilient. Well, it's because the brain is really plastic; it's growing all these new neural connections, and um, you're you are a lot more resilient. You know, as you get older, um, you know your energy levels go down. You're not quite as resilient. Sometimes neurotransmitter production goes down, and you just you slow down a little bit and that's actually, that's okay. You don't have to, you know, you can be running marathons and, you know, you can be at your, your mom's health club where the gentleman who's 88 or 90 is spinning. Like that's what we love to see, but you know, um, we change right as we get older. So, but so that's the question then as well, right? So is, is it, you know, the probability, I, I don't know how much research there is around that, but like people who don't take proactive brain health decisions, like what is that probability of, of developing disease? I guess there isn't like a research on that, but the good news is like, what can people be focusing on to be on that positive brain health so that they don't even begin to have the decline? That's the best way to think about it. It's like having a savings account and putting money in your savings account or however, diversifying your portfolio, right? We're going to make sure we own some land and we're going to make sure maybe we have some gold and then we're going to have something in the stock market. We're going to, you know, it's, it's a way to help ensure that you're going to reduce the risk of having to contend with the neurodegenerative disorder, right? By the time um, people hit the age of 65, they say one out of 10 adults um, will be contending with, uh, you know, potential neurodegenerative disease. Like the risk increases with age. And so that's why it's really easy to go up until you're probably the age of 50 and not really think about your brain health. And then you cross the age of 50. Now you're taking care of your aging parents who you see have dementia and, you know, it's the cycle of life. Like as one gets older, things change and, you know, we have the stamina and energy to manage that. But you see that and you're like, number one, you're like, I don't want to be like that, right? How do I change that so I don't have to depend on other people so I don't have to lose my memory so I can still be a functional member of society? You know, how many people work their whole lives and then retire and then you should be having fun, but they're taking care of medical issues. So for all of the young people listening, it's like being proactive, right? If you're 20 and you're listening to this podcast, you're a million steps ahead of the game. Um, and I think it's in the collective consciousness now, more young kids are really sort of excited about brain health and addressing their mental health. And if you're older, 
if you're 60 and you're listening to the beautiful Claudia on this podcast, then I love it because I would say it's not too late and you can still change your brain function and the things we'll talk about can help support your brain health. Um, and the, the most important point, if you get nothing else from this conversation, like from listening to Claudia and I, you know, I'm a neurobiologist by training, right? I used to look at individual neurons and study what happens to them. Um, specifically with regards to Parkinson's disease and what happens at the level of the synapse and how things change in the brain. Um, so I like to think that every neuron in your brain is precious. And when we think of these degenerative disease processes happening 5, 10, 15 years before you have a symptom, we're now talking about how do we protect the cells of your brain, these beautiful neurons, and what are we doing every day to protect your cells. So if we think about it now at the cellular health, the cellular level, it makes more sense. Oh, this is why I should be drinking water, right? Because we want, you know, our beautiful cells to have lots of, you know, nutrients coming in and you need water to flush out the metabolic waste and help bringing the nutrients in and help keeping um, our blood pressure to a healthy level. Some people don't even realize if you have high blood pressure, just making sure you get the right amount of water in can help to regulate it. Because how many people out here are, you know, I, I write in the book, this is one of my favorite points. Our brain is 75% water. It's not 75% coffee, fruit juice, Gatorade, iced tea, kombucha tea. Like it's, and my husband actually gives me a hard time because I drink a lot of green juice and he doesn't always see when I drink water. And he's like, you know, you talk about water, but you're drinking juice. Like you're, I'm like, yeah, but that's actually fresh. Exactly. And there's vegetables. And there's why, yeah, it's, they're, they're, they're very hydrating, but you know, I just bring up this point. Something is simple. If, if, if people do nothing else, but drink the proper amount of water each day for their body, um, over the course of decades, that's preserving your brain function. And I think for women, it's like three liters a day and for men, four or something like that, depending on activity levels. Is that right? Yeah. The, so the Institute of Medicine statistics say 3.7 liters for men each day, which is like, I think 125 ounces. And for women, it's 2.5 liters, which is about 90 ounces. So I've rounded up. <laughs> you, you round it up. So I like, cause you optimize, so you're like, hmm, I'm going to take, I'm going to factor in everybody's exercising who listens. Exactly. Cause my husband also says that he's like, you exercise all the time. You're not drinking enough water, which I love. Cause he literally drinks a ton of water. Very know, impressive. Good myself. Yeah. yeah you all probably right. are good at it. Um, empty, uh, yeah lemon and ginger tea here. So I need to. <laughs> yeah. And that is fun. That works. Oh, I love your, well, you know, I have my, my collections here. So my green. <laughs> exactly. um, but it's, I mean, it's, it is so important, right? Not to be dehydrated because sometimes over time, and again, I think this happens more in an older population when people are sixties and seventies, they just, they don't think about it. They don't mm. do it. And so mm. You've got to get the fluids in. Yeah. Because I always say, if you, if you go to the hospital, um, mm. for many issues, the first thing they do is hook you up to an IV to make mm. sure you're well, you know, you have Rehydrate. fluids. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, and so that's just one of those little reminders. It's not easy. You know, when I taught the brain directed weight loss groups in our clinics, that was the number one thing 
the very first thing I had everybody do. Mm. I said, that's what we're going to start with. Our first goal the first week is you're going to calculate how much water you should be Mm -hmm. drinking. And I want you to accomplish that every day. We're not even going to move to number two until you get that down. So that's how simple it can be, but, um, you know. And I I think with that, just for, I know some people are like, well, you know, it depends. And and personally, myself, if I'm working at my desk, like I'll have my tea and I'll have my things there. If I'm out and about, like I will not drink as much. And then I notice it and I have to remember. And I think it's having your schedule, like having those optimized, knowing the days you're going to be out and about, like maybe it's always in your car, you have like your water there. Or if you're out and about, you always have your bottle with you and you know how many times you need to refill it in the day to just remember, right? To make it as easy as possible. So you don't need to think, oh, okay, I missed a day of it. And then I know some people are worried like, well, I don't want to be up at night. And there are different strategies around this, but some people say, you know, get the hydration in earlier in the day so that you can stop drinking by 6 p.m. or whatever that time is for you so that you're not you know, running to the bathroom all night. <laughs> well, it's great that you mentioned that. So one of the things people in my group did is they'd get three 32-ounce um, bottles, so those BPA-free bottles in the different colors. And so if you get three, that's almost 100 you know, ounces of water. And that work for both the men and women. And you can do, you know, your blue bottle, your pink bottle, your green bottle, and you have them throughout the day. And so I would do it too. So anything I talk about in the book or anything I teach, I do because it's, it's living the message and it's being authentic. Um, and you even saw, I had my green juice just before we started. And then I was like, okay, wait, I've drank, I drank too much. I'm like, now I have to use the restroom, right? That's normal. Um, and healthy, but you're right. You know, if you're somebody who has a prostate issue or you already know, like you can stop drinking your fluids, you know, earlier in the evening. So you don't have to do that. But, um, it's just, it's smart to get that as your number one strategy. Like I said, if, if people leave this podcast with nothing else, you trust me when I say just getting those fluids in. And again, it's not just the water, you know, you can get 20% of your hydrating fluids from soups and teas and the green juices and your hydrating fruits and veg- fruits and vegetables. So I like that. Um, but just try to find water. Yeah. <laughs> but I, but this is also, I think an interesting point. I want to hear what your view on this is that there was a point where I was drinking buckets of green tea with fresh lemon thinking, this is great. It's a diuretic. And I woke up one morning and it was really, really bizarre. I almost felt like I was in a dream. Now, this has probably been about a week of like drinking three liters of my, you know, pot with the thing. I'm thinking it's all great. But of the oh, you're tea. drinking three liters of tea? Yeah. Well, I, like oh, two and a half, three. Like I was, because oh, I'd be wow. it and the thing. And so I woke up in the morning, Kristen, and it felt like I was in some cartoon with this like super rocky ship. I couldn't even like, <laughs> and I oh was like, God. what is going on? Like, and I don't take medication and I don't like, and I, right. I, I'm not healthy, but I was like, I can't get to the kids to school. Like I literally was really wow. concerned. And so I, I had a doctor and I spoke to the doctor come and see me. And um, he's like, well, you know, it could be your heart, your middle yes. ear. And he was like, he was totally baffled. He couldn't figure right. it out. And then just by chance, <laughs> spoke to somebody and they're like, oh, well, green tea will do this to you. It's a diuretic. So I was dehydrated. But meanwhile, I'm thinking I'm drinking liters and liters of, I had drunk some water, but because it's a diuretic, it was just draining me completely. So 
what are the big things people should be careful of? I know caffeine is a diuretic as well. (laughs) Coffee is a diuretic. Exactly. That's why I didn't know you were drinking three liters of the tea. This is great. Yeah. (laughs) So good for me. But you know what? I'm so happy you brought that up because this, this is authentic and it's real and it's what happens. It's what happens with the tea. It, It happens with supplements too, right? People are like, oh, I was told I should take this supplement. And then they have a side effect. And they, you know, their doctor's trying to figure out what in the world has caused this. So yes, when we talk about the water, we want it to just be water. That's why I was saying the other 20% can come from, and that's the tea. So I said the tea. So 20% of three liters, not, not three liters. Yeah, exactly. Right. So no, the so just water to be clear, piece, everybody, don't do what I did. <laughs> don't follow, but learn from her, right? Learn from her <laughs> knowledge, experience, and training. Don't drink three <laughs> liters of green tea or whatever tea you've done. Because you probably did it several days days in a row is what I'm Oh, it was like a week of it. Yeah. Yeah, A week. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) You know, I go all in when I go in. I'm like, this is so great. You do go all in. And the the other thing, and I I believe we probably talked about this on our marathon um, podcast that we did the first time you interviewed Mm -hmm. me, which I Uh think went three hours. Four four hours, I think, Chris. Oh, it was four hours. (laughs) Yeah. Clearly we, yes. One of the, as you drink your water, um, one of the things that I love to teach people, because I think it's really important, and I wish somebody taught this to me, um, is the importance of drinking water when you wake up. Like the first thing that you should have um, isn't, shouldn't be coffee. So you've spent all night sleeping right? Hopefully eight hours for some people who are super achievers, that might be six hours. Um, but you want to hydrate with water first before you have a cup of coffee, which is dehydrating. So to all of your listeners out there that sort of regularly wake up and say, Oh, I wake up with my coffee. Do your best to try a glass of water first or a hydrating green juice. Yeah. Right. And then do your coffee because that's, think about supporting your body. Again, I'm all about nourishing and nurturing this incredible brain and body that you have. And what are those, you know, small pearls of wisdom that I can share with you from working with what thousands of patients that come in our clinic where we see their brain scans see what's going on and go, okay, we need to kind of do a reboot, right? What can we do to kind of get you on the right path? And I will say many of the things that get people on the right path, they have to do in their own homes, right? You, you know, you go to a doctor to get medicine, you know, we've got supplements and we've got medicines and technologies, but You've got a whole kitchen there, everything that you put in your mouth every day, the environment you're living in, like I said, the exercise you're getting, all of that is such a big contributor to your overall brain health. So, yeah, yeah. that's really important. And we'll, we'll, I'm excited to dig into that again and, and to share that with yeah. people. And just one point I had, um, Professor Dr. Sachin Panda, um, of the Salk Institute. I'm not sure if you're familiar with awesome. him and his work. I yeah. might've seen that. Did you have him talk about sleep? circadian rhythm? Yeah. Cause yeah. I think I saw that one. Okay. Beautiful. Yeah. yeah. And so he was also saying that, you know, research is there that because of the cortisol response, when we're waking, it's actually important to wait 90 minutes 
So and as for coffee lovers to know this, Ooh, before yes. having your cup of coffee. So 90 minutes. Because oh, of is it cortisol. because you have the cortisol boost when you wake up? Yeah. Right. Okay. Stressing your body if you have caffeine, which is a stimulator as well, by having it during that time frame. So, okay. I love that. Well, you know, I don't drink coffee, so I'm probably one of your very few people, but I think that's fascinating. Mm-hmm. Um, and it just goes to show, you know, a lot of people that I've worked with, and I'm sure those that you've coached and work with, um, a lot of people don't wake up with energy. So the first thing they do is reach for the coffee for energy. And the thing that I like to really focuses on is how do we wake up just feeling energized naturally. And so I think these little things like waiting the 90 minutes after you get up to have your coffee, right? Wake up if you can and get your exercise in because that's when you have the highest amount of cortisol. It'll be energizing. Mm-hmm. You'll get yeah. your workout in, right? Yeah. You'll boost your mood. And then BDNF um, factor as well, right? By- you get your BDN, your brain-derived neurotropic factor, which helps grow new neurons in the brain. So you're going to help support growing neurons in the region of the brain that actually starts to shrink um, as you get older, the hippocampus. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we want to preserve that beautiful brain region. Uh, and doing exercise every day is what helps it boosting the BDNF, the exercise. Kristen, just a question on that. Is there an optimal amount of time to exercise? Mm -hmm. That's the minimum effective dose, I want to say, right? So it's not like doing a two-hour run like a maniac around the neighborhood, right? (laughs) We actually have a few of those in our neighborhood. My husband will be driving. It'll be six o'clock at night. There's this woman power walking. He's like, I see her at all hours of the day. She's got her whole little suit on, like her whole outfit at all hours of the day. And I was like, wow, she's very committed. Um, But for all those of us who have to like live in the real world and, you know, hold down a job and take care of a family or aging parents, this was a really cool study. I always love to share this because it drives home that it doesn't have to be, you do not have to go crazy with two hours of running to get your exercise in. So as we age, I was talking about the brain, like slowly starts to shrink and that's called normal aging. Um, but we, there's these certain regions like the hippocampus. I'll keep mentioning it's the area of the brain essential to learning and memory. We need to preserve as much of that volume as we can, because when we, we learn things during the day, it goes from our short-term memory, which is in the front part of our brain, prefrontal cortex. Um, and at night, you know, it gets shuttled into our long-term memory, but it has to go through the hippocampus. Like that, that is the essential component to sort of transfer the energy from short-term memory to long-term memory. Okay. So it's all about how do we protect this beautiful part of the brain? So we just talked about the exercise. Um, a gentleman by the name of Erickson, this is his last name, at all published a paper in PNAS, and he asked the question, does 40 minutes of walking? So he looked at an older population, I, and I'm about to cross over into that. I think we called older, like 50, 58, <laughs> yeah, like 58 to 80. I mean, I can't remember the exact numbers. Could have been 55 to 80, but looked at an older group of individuals, Um did brain imaging, like baseline brain imaging. And then after a year, um, he followed people that just did 40 minutes of walking 
um, with their heart rate elevated between 50 to 70% VO2 max. And you can wear a little heart rate monitor, you know, 50 is reasonable. So it's like power walking for 40 minutes and compare their hippocampal volume to those individuals who just did stretching and toning, right? So they're your non-aerobic activity people, but still did probably their Pilates and their stretching. And um, he found that those that just did the 40 minutes of power walking throughout the year um, increased hippocampal volume by one to 2%. It might've even been to 2%. Well, those who did the stretching and toning, it decreased by about 1.4%. So why am I saying this? So as we age, like when we get older, the hippocampal volume shrinks by about one to 2% each year. So just the 40 minutes of power walking, that's it. As you cross the Rubicon, you're 55 and older, (laughs) is going to help preserve that hippocampal volume. Why? Because you're getting your heart rate up. It's boosting blood flow to that region of the brain. More blood means more oxygen, more nutrients. Um, It boosts that brain-derived neurotropic factor, which is like miracle grow for the hippocampus and for the the neurons there. And as long as we don't do habits that thwart the growth of that region, so like drinking alcohol every night, like don't have a glass of wine every night after your power walk. Um, And I do have to say that because working in a clinical setting, when you start to ask people, you know, do you drink? What are your drinking habits? A lot of people feel that having a glass of wine each night is okay or having a beer after work is okay and um, that will shrink your brain volume. So do your 40 minutes of power walking and, you know, try to refrain from the alcoholic, you know, celebrating with the the cocktail afterwards. I think I, 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 if I do not say it, you know, I will yeah. preface this by saying, you know, if you would come into our clinic and you're, you were healthy, you didn't have any psychiatric diagnoses and there was no concerns about, um, Alzheimer's in your family. We always say one to two glasses of something a week is okay. If you have a healthy brain, I personally feel like you should probably be kind to your liver and your brain and not do it except on special occasions, mm-hmm. birthdays, holidays. Um, yeah. cause it's just, you know, that's not it's a brain not health that, food. And I, I, I actually food. think, you know, at one time people, even doctors were recommending, yes, you can have a glass of red wine. Red wine mm-hmm. is good for you. And I think the tide is changing now when you're mm-hmm. looking at these large brain biobank studies. I think one was actually published out of the UK Brain Biobank, where they looked at, I know, People thank you. Blood, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, yes. And they looked at drinking habits and found that those, and I'm, I'm not going to quote it accurately. So I'm just going to make sort of a general statement, but drinking alcohol was associated with, sh- with smaller brain volumes. And of course, to me, that is not, uh, that statement is not rocket science. It is just a reality. Like, I don't like people, you know, sometimes people, try to um, make their bad habits seem okay. Like my doctor says it's okay, or I've read the Mediterranean diet. You could have a couple glasses of wine. Um, If you want to be a a longevity enthusiast, you know, alcohol, your poor liver has got to, you know, process those toxins and they do flow through the bloodstream to your brain. So, you know, it's not good for your neurons. 
Yeah. And I think it's, it's like a, a shift as well. So, you know, I'm, I'm generally not a big drinker. I mean, this is not talking about my student days at <laughs> university. And right. We're time. all going to put our college days, like we're just yeah. going to pretend. Yeah. Cause I, I have had, you know, turning 21. Exactly. <laughs> and things not and, my uh, finest moment. <laughs> For another story, but another time. Exactly. Um, but for the half marathon that I did recently, I was like, you know what? I'm yes, give congratulations, by the Thank way. Thank you. Thank yes. you. I mean, some people are like running multiple marathons or like ultra marathon. They're like, you know, what's this? But for me, it was a big thing. So I've done it's it. Huge. I'm not a long distance runner. I don't need to do it again. Um, but it was, <laughs> you it was check that off your bucket list. <laughs> it wasn't even on it in the first place. I somehow okay. It, it is what it is, <laughs> but I gave up drinking alcohol and, um, I just thought in social settings, like I, I was out at some dinners and stuff as well. And like, it, right. it's when you're able to make that shift. Mm-hmm. And again, I had the half marathon as my like thing and it was fine. Excuse, as your excuse. Excuse. Yeah. Um, to, and I know to that make it yeah. socially acceptable. So people don't pressure you into yeah. feeling like I, you have to. Exactly. And I guess it depends on your friends and your environment. I'm, I'm you know, speaking right. with people listening. Right. But um, it's like... I know, especially like in an Irish or UK culture, it's very much like, oh, you're not drinking, like have something. Depends who you're with. Right. Now, my group of friends are not like that, thankfully. So there was no no issue with it. And I was surprised myself because I would be like, oh, I'll just have one drink tonight or whatever. But it's so nice to wake up the next day. And like, you know, when I was in my twenties, like I was fine on like three hours of sleep and a few cocktails. I told you, (laughs) Teflon, when you're young, you can do it all. Yeah, I was fine then. But um, now I notice, and I speak to friends as well, like, you know, it just doesn't, what's the point? Like, I don't want to ruin my next day. Like there's so many things I want to do and achieve and like, et cetera, that why would I write off a day? Right. And so it's interesting now, like how long I'll, I'll keep it, keep it this way. Um, and that's not never say never, but I think what you said was a valid point in terms of, you know, if there's certain celebrations or whatever, like just feel into it, but it's not having right. that regular check-in, assuming Mediterranean diet and the glass of wine every day is okay. I mean, I know people who drink half a bottle of wine by themselves. I, regularly. I know, I know. I, I know people who do that as well. Mm-hmm. And they're like, I'm functioning, I'm fine. And I'm like, if we looked at your brain, right? it might have a different story. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, well, and I realize it's habit. Mm-hmm. I think for people, it becomes habit. Yes. And mm-hmm. it, I will say, Again, this is the beauty. I'm very, very grateful. I had the opportunity to work with the Amen Clinics and actually mm-hmm. see for myself what these things do to people's brains. Like, yeah. you know, can you share some of those, gives, those examples? Like, what were some? Yeah. So, I'll tell you when we had people come in who were dealing with uh, issues with alcohol. Mm-hmm. It causes very low perfusion globally throughout the brain. And what that means is low blood flow. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we could see it very clearly on the imaging. And sometimes people would come and fill out the forms and we'd have their history and they speak with the historian for two hours. So we were very thorough in getting the medical history. Mm-hmm. And you'd look at the brain scan and you go, wow, this doesn't comport. Much. Like there's a piece that's missing and you go, you know, what's, you know, have you had traumatic brain injuries, right? Is there an alcohol issue? So the brains of people who are alcoholics, we show very, very low blood flow could be throughout the brain and like a scalloping toxic looking pattern. What's happening though? What does the alcohol do to prevent blood flow? It's 
toxic. So think of alcohol as toxic to the brain. It's toxic to the white matter, which is the what surrounds uh, the axon. So your neurons have a very long axon. It can be surrounded by white matter, which helps uh, neurons communicate efficiently from one mm-hmm. to the other. So over time, I mean, so you've got that. It's just toxic and can damage neurons. And number two, it can slow thinking in the brain because, right, you're slowing the communication between mm-hmm. neurons. It's a central nervous system depressant. Wow. So, you know, but and you know that because everyone who drinks alcohol always feels calm and they feel good um, initially. But I talk about how, you know, it impacts your sleep. So if you have alcohol and then you go to sleep, um, it interferes with your sleep architecture. So you're going to have a harder time with your memory. Remember I was telling you about, you take all of that great information you learn during the day and it, it's when we sleep that we get it into the long-term memory. So alcohol will slow that process down or impede that process. Um, it takes a lot. I mean, I will tell you, and you and I've talked about this, one of my family members uh, who is brilliant, had a PhD um, and worked at university. She quietly had an alcohol problem. You know, she was a functional, high functioning alcoholic, highly intellectual, and she died of cirrhosis of the liver in her fifties. And it shocked our whole family because we did not see it. So the one thing I will say, having worked in a brain imaging clinic and have had the opportunity, pretty much everybody who walked in our clinic for evaluation would be getting either electrical or functional imaging of the brain. So you start to see the patterns, like what do people's brains look like? And what do people's brains look like who, you know, who are alcoholics or Mm -hmm. functional Mm. alcoholics Mm. who are having that glass or two glasses. Um, and it's, it's deleterious to your brain health as well as your liver and other organs of the body. So it's just, Mm -hmm. it's a toxin that needs to be, um, metabolized and removed. And it's, Mm -hmm. it does take a lot, you know, as you know, you probably know people who've been alcoholics Mm -hmm. and they seem to be functioning, but where it might catch up with you is as you age, because think about the, it's the aging brain meets the toxic brain. Mm-hmm. Right. And so mm-hmm. that's the part where if anybody's listening and they're like, Oh, I didn't think of it like that. And maybe it's good to stop now. Yeah. Um, so would you recommend yeah. for people listening who are maybe like on the fence to say, Oh, you know, I have a few drinks every week. Would you just say like, it's well, ideal to just cut down to a few times a year and that's it. Would, would you- I, I think that, I mean, the best is like you slowly Zero. start to, yeah. I mean, unless you're a healthy individual, like then, you know, again, we say you could do one to two glasses a week, but I, I would prefer to say the celebrations is the best time. And you're going to find, I mean, it's a good experiment to do for yourself. Just stop for a week and see how mm. you feel. You mm-hmm. did it. Yeah, right? I mean, it's, for months, yeah. I see just, how much, yeah, see how how yeah. much more productive you are, how better, yeah. how much better you feel, and mm-hmm. then you weigh risk-benefit analysis. You know, here's, it's the beauty of life. We get to choose how we want to live it. You can decide what, h- how you want to live your life and what your brain does or doesn't do. The hardest part, and maybe it's why I'm so sort of particular when I make recommendations, is once you've crossed the Rubicon and you have a degenerative disease, you've lost brain volume. Like we see, sometimes there's nothing 
there's not a lot we could do. Like, so we don't want to get you to that point, right? There are some people that I'm working with right now that have dementia, their hippocampal volume is at the fifth percentile of somebody their age and gender. And, you know, that's hard, right? That's so we're really working from a deficit. There's still things we can do. So it's almost like, let's just start now. <laughs> I think that's the the main point. And I will tell you, at least here in America, like the American Academy of Neurology is now really embracing brain health as an initiative. The World Health Organization is embracing brain health as an initiative. It's really, it's really fascinating to see because they realize now, you know, this is, it's not just the decade of the brain. It's, you know, it's, it's the century of the brain. Like now we need to focus on it. And when we take better care of our brain health through reducing exposure to toxic substances. So that's cigarettes. That's Let's talk about that. Alcohol. Yeah, exactly. mm-hmm. right? Cigarettes, alcohol. But what about like molds in houses? What about like well, bo- molds in the products? Mm-hmm. Yeah. The mold in the houses is really interesting. We actually um, had bought a new house and took the roof off just before we got these torrential rain <laughs> storms in LA. And you know, we could see there was mold growing in the house and I had every room, you know, I had somebody come in here and measure the particulates in every room to make sure that we were going to be safe. Um, yeah. Sometimes toxic mold exposure, you don't see it. It's like, it's happening. It's, it's silent. And, um, it's not a bad idea to think about having that done. If you never had it done in your home, just to see what the levels are and do some remediation. It's actually very easy to do. Yeah. Can you share with people like what, what does one do? So let's say somebody knows like, oh, I had a leak, um, you know, from my neighbor. Yeah, it was a rainstorm. It's, it's a rainstorm rain or, or yeah. my basement flooded. Right. But, and so somebody, so comes you call, in? Yeah, yeah, you can call a mold inspector. They will literally measure the particles. They measure the particles inside the house as compared to out, the outside environment. That's the gauge that they measure by, and they can physically, visibly inspect it and see if it's, you know, in black mold, you can actually see it. Sometimes it's behind the wall so they can cut it out. Um, and, you know, then you can go through the mold remediation process. I think the most important part is if you've had a big storm and there's been water in your home, you can number one, get a dehumidifier. I think we had like six of them. I bought (laughs) six from Home Depot in one night and I had six fans. They were going all around the house because, you know, there was serious water damage happening. And as somebody who studies the brain and my husband is the same way, he's like, we need the bold guy here stat. Um, And we've done it before in the bathroom. Sometimes you just want to do a check like bathrooms can tend to get, you know, mold exposure. So that's, again, a nice way to see is your environment, the air that you're breathing clean. Right. And you, you can also get the air. Um, we have rabbit air purifiers. Actually, I'm not running them in all of the rooms, but you can also do that to have like a clean air flowing through. And if, and if you get those purifiers, by the way, you have to clean all of the different, like our purifiers have like seven different like shields because they, yeah, the different, yeah, the different filters. So you have to also commit to, cleaning them and cleaning the filters. 
Full time job running, and then the Um, There's a lot to it, right? There's a lot to like keeping your the area you live in clean. Because my understanding, and correct me if I'm wrong, but that the black mold, like the mycotoxins, they get into the at a cellular level. So you really yeah, they're neurotoxic. They're neurotoxic as well, and so you need to detox that. So if someone has had black mold exposure what would you recommend? Is it sauna? Um, is it taking certain supplements that help to extract it? Like what do you see as beneficial? So that's a good question and not my area of expertise. I'd probably have go, have somebody go to a functional medicine practitioner or somebody who specializes in that to see if, I mean, yes, like overall for detoxification, saunas are great. Infra, infrared light therapy um, could probably be helpful and there are probably IV and chelation therapies that would be, you know, specific to what you've been exposed to that could help clear, clear that. Um, so that's the good news. That's what I would do. <laughs> <laughs> they go, but I'm like, we look at the, we look at the brain and then we're like, okay, go see the functional medicine practitioner <laughs> who can help clear that from your system. Um, you yeah. know, and on that same point too, we can look at, you know, when you have your blood work done, you can look at um, heavy metals. You know, mm. have you been exposed to mercury, arsenic, lead? Um, one of my dear girlfriends who's 76 just had a comprehensive blood panel done. Mm-hmm. And, you know, she has high levels of mercury and wow. she's not sure where they come from. She's like, I don't really eat fish. You know, Is I said, you have filling. I know I asked her about the fillings in the mouth. No, I don't. You know, it's it's perplexing, but she's now going and getting the chelation therapy for it mm-hmm. because mercury is toxic yeah. to brain cells. What mercury can sort of accumulate um, and thwart the ability of neurons to communicate with one another. So it's like, it gunks up the system, gunks yeah. up the cables. And so you, <laughs> yeah. like I say, it's like two neurons talking to one another. It's like a nice long cable. And if, you know, if abno- if mercury or aluminum is in, in your brain, um, mm-hmm. you're just not going to have a clear uh, communication from one, one neuron to the next. And that's what causes the memory issue. So again, I mean, I love that people now, like I said, this is a dear friend of mine who's 76 that's mm-hmm. doing it. And yeah. it's like, bravo, she's all, she just got an infrared light like panel for herself. And she's like, will this work? I mean, if the infrared light and photobiomodulation is really fascinating. The yeah. data that's starting to come out on that to help cellular energetics. And we're looking at it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's really for the mitochondria that's, that's in the bloodstream, right? You're sort of helping the mitochondria, um, to little cellular energy centers, pump up more ATP. So you feel more energized. Mm-hmm. Um, but looking at using that to help people who have dementia and Alzheimer's disease is really mm-hmm. fascinating. You know, so mm-hmm. I, I'm seeing people use it more for their skin or yeah. for anti-aging. And mm-hmm. there's all of this, like, how close do you have to be to the panel? Like, does it have to be touching your skin? There's a lot going on there the that details, we're still yeah. learning. Yeah. yeah. But I, I, you know, I don't see any um, harm in using those things. Um, I know I, I have think one they can all help. Space masks that I, that I. Uh, oh, is that why you look so gorgeous? Like, well, is that. I think, I think it's the Apple MacBook. Uh, <laughs> do you have one of the masks? Like, my, my girlfriend. My 76-year-old girlfriend got one, and no, I was like, well... It's, it's South it, Korean from Cell Return, no affiliation, and um, okay. 
it, I find it phenomenal. They've got different settings, red light, blue light, and then they have a pink light yeah. as well. And then 20 minutes or 10 How minutes. How high? Yeah. Only, you only need 20 minutes because that's, yeah. you know, the um, blood circulates. And by you about can already see beautiful rejuvenation after that 20 minutes in there. It's like almost like an incubator type of thing. There is a, like, yeah. Whole- I saw the whole, she, she actually took a picture and asked me what I think about it. Exactly. I said, I have not used this yet. Um, maybe right. I should. Right. I know, yeah. but I mean, at the end of the day, it's kind of try and see, but I did buy the panel for my parents yeah. and my mother with her dementia, but now yeah. she, with the it's dementia, sadly, it's too far that she's like, why am I sitting in front of this? What is this Are you cooking me? Oh, your poor mom. It's like baking your mom. Like, okay, sit in front of this panel. <laughs> turn the- like, I know. Espe- and especially with dementia where she's like, I don't even, you know, what this is, is not compute. Yeah. But in, your mom is a really interesting example. Like if you look back over your life, did she have any, um, habits that you saw? Like, I mean, I know Dr. Bredesen said, well, it could be a TBI. I mean, TBI is, mm-hmm. you know, you could have one traumatic brain injury and it could increase your risk several. of dementia. She had several, right? So, Did she- so I think, I mean, there's a larger picture with it, right? And so yeah. we've obviously spent a lot of time and we've discussed this and, and with Dale Bredesen as well. And yeah. I think, one driver is the lack of HRT after hysterectomy in the 1990s, which she had in Ireland at the time. Um, and so lack of estrogen falls off a cliff. I know from... Bilo- I mean, that's... Okay, so that's one possibility, right? Lower yeah. estrogen. Okay. Lower estrogen. And then um, I also... And there's a risk-benefit analysis with that too, with HRT and deciding well, like cancer, yeah, predisposition to cancer versus like per, the neuroprotective piece. Yeah. And I've, I've had yeah. Dr. Joanne Manson from Harvard Medical School on the podcast, yeah. who was the leader of the study that was cut short and misinterpreted as well. And so it, there is a lot to, to be seen with that, but let's park that for a minute. Okay. So there's one bucket there, low estrogen. The one bucket okay. there, but she mm-hmm. had three more major head trauma incidents, one at the gym, a line of treadmills, what someone left a treadmill on and she was crossing over sort of from one treadmill to another. <gasps> in conversation. She stepped on a moving treadmill. Stepped on it, went flying, like really knocked her head, right? Mm-hmm. So that was number one. Number two was here visiting us in London with my kids. My daughter had this kind of scooter, which is like a skateboard with a thing with the handle, right? That, that, <laughs> that sticks oh, out. Oh, no. She was pulling it behind her. It was a bit of a, a, a slide. So her foot, literally like in a cartoon, sadly, <gasps> got on top of it and it went flying. And she was she unconscious. Went back. So oh, she got knocked out unconscious? She was unconscious for 20 seconds, 30 seconds, whatever it was. Okay. I mean, not like a longer period of time, but still enough to knock her unconscious. Um with a neighbor's place. So there's like a few, few different things. With the neighbors, she missed a step, fell on her face. And the worst of it all was in January 2020, the great year 2020, right? Um, she had had a vein procedure. And honestly, I'm, I'm still very upset that the doctor thought it was a good idea for a then 76 year old to have both legs done at the same time. The same time. So she couldn't wrapping them tightly, which means chance of blood clot is very high because <gasps> you're supposed to keep your legs I know. elevated and elevated. moving. And moving. Yeah. You should be moving. She was informed to keep them elevated and not to move too much. That was on a Friday. 
And Sunday morning, after having them elevated for over two, you know, two, almost two days, and thankfully it was a Sunday morning and my father was in the next room, but she went into the bathroom and she collapsed. And my father thought that, like, what is this noise? That the whole mirror must have come off the wall because it was so noisy. And she must have literally fallen, like, directly backwards. And what came to pass was that there were two blood clots that went into her lungs which caused her oxygen saturation level to be so low that she fainted in such a drastic way that she literally collapsed, opened the back of her head. And she went from the previous week going to the gym five mornings a week at 8 a.m. She was there without fail with the 90-year-old who could do the rocket kick and all the rest of it to lying in hospital. She recognized myself, my sister, my father, but she would be like you know, who, who are these ladies that keep coming and touching my arm? Like she didn't comprehend that was a nurse. She's in Florida looking out at palm trees asking, is is this New York city? Is that central park? Like she, and that was the first time I understood what a concussion can be. And you'll know this. Well, she had not just a concussion, but two blood clots, pulmonary embolism, Mm -hmm. low oxygen saturation for who knows how long, Yeah, by the way. So, Prior to that, she was cognitively. She was uh, like there might be slightly small things, but she was. Yeah, I mean this. So this was was the critical like incident. Yeah, yeah. Oh my god. Okay. Honestly, like that's to me that seems like the most yeah precipitating factor. But it also goes to show. I mean, this is. This is why traumatic brain injuries or brain injuries are getting knocked unconscious. Like to me, that is one of the number one, these are the things we can prevent, mm-hmm. you know, and we've got to sort of think in that preventative way. Yeah. Like how do we always protect our head? If we've had an incident or several incidents where we've been knocked unconscious, it increases your risk of dementia significantly because we don't know mm-hmm. what areas of the brain are impacted. Remember, uh, head impacts are the invisible brain injury. And unless you go and get scanned, right, you come to, to the aiming clinics and get the spec scan or EEG or, a, um, you know, they're not going to do a CT scan unless they suspect a brain bleed. So a lot of times you don't even know what's really happened to your brain. And so just maybe for somebody listening, like I remember not so long ago in the kitchen or whatever, and I kind of went up quickly and I didn't realize that the door of one of the cupboards was open. So like, what is, and obviously I stayed conscious. It was quite a, (laughs) quite a bump for people who've like hit their head, you know, how, how do you define trauma, like head injury? Mild traumatic. Yeah. There's mild traumatic brain injury, moderate uh, brain injury and severe brain injury. And so you know, probably 90% of brain injuries are going to be in the mild traumatic brain injury category. Mm -hmm. And it's the, the definition is really based on signs and symptoms. So have you been knocked unconscious? Mm -hmm. Right. Number one, Um, if you haven't been knocked unconscious, it's, you know, mild traumatic brain injury. But if you have been knocked unconscious, for it's usually for less than five minutes versus more than five minutes, or if you've had what's called post-traumatic amnesia. So you sort of wake up for it, but you can't remember details either pre or post impact, you know, then, you know, we're going more into the moderate category. So Mm -hmm. if you've just hit your head, but you're not unconscious, that's Mm -hmm. mild. 
Okay. Um, and usually, again, the categories are separated by how long you've been unconscious, mm-hmm. right? If it, is it five minutes or more? You know, usually less than five minutes. They're like, okay, well, this could be mild. More than five minutes, or having if you've hit your head and you have this post-traumatic amnesia, right? You're having trouble remembering things after mm-hmm. the impact, um, especially if it's longer than a day, then we're going to go into the moderate category. Mm-hmm. So if you've hit your head, you haven't lost consciousness and you still have your memory intact, it's, it's mild. Yeah. Um, but when we start having a loss of consciousness, that's longer than five minutes, or you, again, you have uh, loss of memory, then we're going to start to drift more into the moderate category. Mm-hmm. Um, and then severe is usually a, a brain bleed or like a blunt force trauma to the head, yeah. which well, can happen with an, car accident. Yeah, yeah. She had a brain bleed. She had bleeding in the ventricle, right? So it wasn't actually in the brain matter. So she oh was lucky God. that it wasn't in the brain matter to damage that further, but right. any trauma to that degree into the brain, I guess is just not... It's a singular trauma, especially if it's moderate or severe, where again, Mm -hmm. you've got the loss of consciousness or you have the post-traumatic amnesia that's lasting longer than 24 hours. Um, Again, that increases your risk of dementia. And that's just because you might've lost neurons in a specific region of the brain. That's important in learning and memory or processing information. Mm -hmm. Because remember the whole brain is connected. We need it Mm -hmm. all to function, right? To function well. and when you have ble- you know, bleeding in the brain, that's, you know, sometimes people have to go into the emergency room or surgery and get a shunt to help relieve mm-hmm. the pressure. Yeah. Um, that's why if you have an impact to the brain and you start to lose consciousness, you know, get to an emergency room. Okay. So for people listening, right, if they have any sort of being whatever, knocked, yeah, being any sort of being knocked unconscious, get evaluated by a neurologist. Neurologist. And okay. if you, um, even if you have a mild brain injury and you're not knocked unconscious, but you have symptoms, um, go see a neurologist for an evaluation. It's, mm-hmm. it, it, it never hurts. It can give you peace of mind. And if mm-hmm. they have, but if, if you had a loss of consciousness, um, even if it's briefly, I would go to an emergency room, tell them what happened. They'll decide immediately if you need to get scanned mm-hmm. and don't drive yourself, by the way, okay. if you're at home and it happens, please call. 911 and have an ambulance come get you. Good point. Um, <laughs> because you don't know if you've had an impact to the brain and there's a small brain bleed and you mm-hmm. can um, lose consciousness while driving. So mm-hmm. I don't know. I take every impact to the head seriously. And but what do you do? Like if you, if you knock your head, right? Like what are, what do you, is there a, a, a detox? Well, there's all kinds of hair. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's funny if you, if you have an impact to the head, you can have mm-hmm. all sorts of things happen. Dizziness, nausea, blurry vision, mm-hmm. um, sensitive, sensitivity to light, noise, mm-hmm. sound. You can have, um, trouble with sleeping. So, I mean, you have all of these different symptoms that you might have to manage, um, you know, because I work in the brain health space. If it happens to me, I clearly have people I can call or I can get scanned immediately. Um, but for the average person, if that happens again, this is where you can call your general practitioner or call your neurologist, just let somebody know that you've had it and discuss your symptoms because there might be things that can be done Mm -hmm. to alleviate headaches, head pain. Um, you know, it's really symptom dependent, mm-hmm. uh, because if you have, 
any psychiatric issues, anxiety or depression, you know, I might say you should go see a psychiatrist to help mm-hmm. get something for that. But it's a head injury. So neurologist is my first recommendation and they can do a full eval in their office. Mm-hmm to help give you some peace of mind on what to do, because truthfully, most people say to rest, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, in our clinical setting, we then work with traumatic brain injuries and say, okay, we're now going to put you on a brain rehabilitation protocol. And that might entail specific dietary recommendations, um, like the Mediterranean diet. Um, it might include some supplement recommendations. Um, at the Amy Clinics, we actually created a formulation that we used for people who have traumatic brain injuries that includes a foundational brain-directed multivitamin. So it's a multivitamin with additional nutrients that help support your brain function. And there's an omega-3 fatty acid. Um, I'd I'd have to go back and look at the formulation again to remember what the specific brain nutrients that we, uh-huh. we added to it. Cause I think there was like a fruit and vegetable blend. Again, yeah. I, I'd have to go Remembering back and look. Okay. Yeah. Well, because then we also added the omega-3 fatty acids. Mm-hmm. Um, Cause when you have traumatic brain injury, the omega-3 fatty acids help decrease inflammation, increase blood flow, and it helps to repair the cell membranes, the neuronal mm-hmm. cell membranes. So you want the omega-3s. And then we had a very specific brain nutrient protocol, um, which entailed alpha lipoic acid to help balance blood sugar, uh, acetyl L-carnitine to help boost acetylcholine, which is the neurotransmitter important for memory. So if people who have traumatic brain injuries have memory issues and we want to help support the memory, we're going to give nutrients that support the memory. Mm-hmm. Um, Cuprazine A also supports memory. So that was part of the formulation. Mm-hmm. Um, and acetylcysteine, which is sort of a powerful antioxidant. Um, and it helps to produce uh, the glutathione, which is powerful mm-hmm. antioxidants. We had N-acetylcysteine, uh, phosphatidylserine, which is also important in supporting cell membrane. So, you know, between the multivitamin, the omega-3s and these brain support nutrients, which mm-hmm. I talk about in the book, I actually give the detailed supplements, what each one does in the brain. And, um, also talked about, you know, you might need to talk to your doctor because again, when you're taking supplements, if you're on blood thinners, we have to be very careful with omega-3 fatty acids and some supplements that thin the blood. Mm -hmm. Um, sometimes people are also on medications that boost acetylcholine. So we have to be Mm -hmm. careful. So I'm very mindful, right? When we make recommendations, even for recovering from traumatic brain injury, you might want to run them by your neurologist or your general practitioner, because, you know, you can have the supplement medication interactions, but we would do dietary interventions, supplement interventions, and then we could test to see where your cognitive level is at. And if we need to strengthen it, we had certain brain training games that you could do, Mm -hmm. um, to help boost you know, your cognitive function. And then we have tools like neurofeedback. Um, so if we measure the electrical activity of your brain and saw certain connections needed mm-hmm. to be strengthened, yeah. we could do neurofeedback protocols. So again, I'm kind of jumping into all of this that you can I do love if it, you've had a yeah. traumatic brain injury. You know, these are just some of the options you have. Well, Kristen as well, this is a protocol that say somebody who's in their forties, maybe had a few mm-hmm. fun 
well, I shouldn't say fun, but like party years, let's say. Yeah. <laughs> brain damaging party years and their brain damaging or, years. Oh, exactly. I see. Mm-hmm. Okay, I'm listening. Like, how do I optimize? Um, can I use this protocol too? Is this just for people with major head brain trauma? Or would you recommend this as a general protocol? F- you know, obviously consult your physician and make sure it's, you know, okay for you, et cetera. But say that right. the physician said, okay, yeah, you're healthy, you can do it and you want to optimize. Is this a protocol you would recommend for most people? You can use it for brain optimization. You can. We would adjust the dose for people with traumatic brain injuries. So yes, to your question, you know, you a healthy individual could take all of these nutritional supplements and what they will do is help support healthy cognitive function and bring more blood flow to the brain. Um, as well as help to repair cell membrane. So yes, you, the answer to your question is you can do this for, for brain optimization. It's funny because a lot of people, um, I'm so used to tailoring supplement protocols for people. And, you know, I love people who are into the optimization piece because they're more open to taking more things. And I'm also used to people being like, I don't want to take a lot of supplements. So how do I streamline this for my brain? And I, in the book, I, I have three tiers of, you know, supplement recommendations for your brain health. I have a section called um, Brain Basics, which sort of are healthy for everyone to take. Like I feel very comfortable with a majority of people just doing the brain basics, no matter what. I have a what I call an all-star category, which sort of up levels, right? Like if you're open to taking supplements and you really want to um, expand, you could do both. And then I have the part called the injured reserve, which is what we were just talking about now. How do I help take care of my brain if I've had a brain injury um, or I'm, you know, I have alcohol issues, right? And I want to optimize my brain because we we use this formula for people who had toxic looking brains as well. Um, so that's a very long winded answer to say no, that you, yeah. you could take it. But if yeah. in the book, I give every single one of those supplements and you can decide, do you want to take everything, <laughs> you know, or you can put it in your food and things like that too. Um, I wanted to talk to you about the hyperbaric oxygen therapy. We've talked about this yes. in the past and I know that was part of the protocol that you did on the clinical trials with the NFL players. I'm just going to check in with you, Kristen. I know as usual, our, our conversations got a bit over. Are you still looking for time for a little bit? Or? I am. Yes. Okay. Yes. We could definitely do the hyperbaric oxygen therapy. So let's and talk I'm about big... that. Yeah. And, and yeah. what you were seeing and um, maybe for people like that, not that familiar, can you just give a, a little bit of context to it as well? Yes. So hyperbaric oxygen therapy is where you actually go into a chamber and breathe a hundred percent partial pressure oxygen. So it's used to help readily get oxygen into the tissues. And it's classically used for people who have gangrene, radiation poisoning, carbon monoxide poisoning, um, deep sea divers who get the bends, Uh, burn victims. So these are the classical indications for using hyperbaric oxygen therapy. We need to very quickly get oxygen into tissues, dying tissues. And um, that is sort of the appropriate use for it. Interestingly now is people are looking at ways to help support um, brain health and longevity you know, we started exploring using hyperbaric oxygen therapy for people who had traumatic brain injuries 
and looking at ways to help reoxygenate the brain. And, you know, this is one of the methods that can be used. So you need to get a prescription for it if you're going to use it at a dose um, of one point. It's usually 1.5 atmospheres or higher. Um, there's, and so what does it do to your brain? So what we found is it helps, um, it helps grow new blood vessels in the brain. So we use uh, imaging modality called brain spect imaging, where we can look at blood flow patterns in the brain. And if we put somebody in a hyperbaric oxygen chamber at 1.5 atmospheres or above for usually an hour, um, what we would find is it would help to increase blood flow to the brain. And we would do 40 sessions in our patients. So usually what we could do is a baseline scan to see where the blood flow is at, have them do 40 sessions um, at 1.5 atmospheres or above, and then do a follow-up scan. And so we saw these areas of the brain that, that had really low blood flow, like we would see with traumatic brain injury, or in the case of even people who've had alcohol issues or Lyme disease, where you see that low perfusion, this is a way to help bring the perfusion back. Um, but it's also anti-inflammatory. It can actually upregulate 8,000 different genes, you know, in the body. So it's a very powerful modality, um, not just for growing new blood vessels and helping bring more oxygen to the tissues, but also uh, it's an antiviral, antibacterial. Um, it's, it's like it boosts your immune system. So they were actually looking at uh, hyperbaric oxygen therapy during the COVID pandemic. Um, the, the problem with that was people were having issues with their lungs and breathing. And, you know, that's another piece that needs to be factored in. So we, you know, we did this before the pandemic. So we were using it exclusively for people with traumatic brain injury and how do we help restore and rehabilitate brain function. Um, there are now clinics that are open that offer hyperbaric oxygen therapy. Um, not all of them are in these chambers. There's ones that have, you know, they're, they're like bags that you can get in and zip. And, you know, the atmospheric pressure is a lot lower. It's usually 1.3 atmospheres, which is around sea level. It's like normal breathing. So if you want to use one of those, those are safer. Um, we did not test them. So in the clinical setting, we used protocols that were clinically indicated that we knew we could make a measurable difference in brain function. Um, so I can't speak to the efficacy of those that are really more at 1.3 atmospheres that are popping up in sort of more health and longevity like clinics. I mean, I know people who are doing them routinely and I can't because I haven't studied them, I can't really speak to their efficacy. So I can only speak to the efficacy of the ones where you're going in a chamber, you know, you have to get the, the dive down to the 100% partial pressure oxygen. We know that it's now getting into your bloodstream and we can see the measurable effects mm -hmm. with the brain imaging. That's yeah. at 1.5 atmospheres and you said it was 40 and sessions or, and higher yeah. as well. Yeah. 40 sessions over what period of time? Like what cadence? Good question. So it's more, so for people who've had traumatic brain injuries or even acutely like who've had strokes, people have used mm -hmm. hyperbaric oxygen therapy. Mm -hmm. If you've had the acute injury, we might say we want you to go in five days a week. Um, mm -hmm. And that's, 
a lot for some people, but we want them to get the best benefit. So if you can go five days a week, um, doing the 40 sessions, it's expensive. Hyperbaric oxygen therapy, if you're going to do the 40 sessions could cost eight to $9,000. So it's Mm -hmm. not an inexpensive proposition, but when you're talking about saving your brain health, if it's clinically indicated, it's worth it. Mm -hmm. Again, if it's in one of these clinics um, where you're going in the chamber and you're zipping yourself in and out and it's at 1.3 atmospheres, that's different. So I, I just don't really know the benefits. You know, you might have to do 80 sessions for it to work, mm-hmm. but I, I don't, yeah, I can't really speak to that. Yeah, no, it's just interesting for people. And I'm also thinking when to be seeing my, my father as well. I remember we, <laughs> I don't yeah. know the atmospheres where he was at, um, but it was so funny. We went for dinner after and he was like, super jokey he was like joking with the the weight it was almost like he was like yeah. a teenager again and i was like you know wow from one session of the he did H-Pod, one session yeah he did one uh, session of h5 yeah just yeah. one session of it and like i've sent him to do it more often my, my parents get them <laughs> all my biohacking ideas i'm like go and do this but do they um, are they doing the chamber like where they're locked in and brought down it, it looks like a hospital bed with the glass uh-huh dome over yeah. it yeah so yeah it's that one like here in yes. london i've been to one and it's more of a like a room with a green light and you put it on and you can feel like it feels like a plane taking off so i, I don't know the exact atmosphere pressure like i don't know how much pressure was in in that one as well so now at least i have the <laughs> the measurement to double check but from 1.5 yeah. you know there's clinical research to say that it makes that difference yeah. It's like anything under that. I just can't, you know, I've had plenty of people ask cause they pop up all, all over the place here in Los Angeles. And I'm like, yeah. well, and I, you know, I guess I'm the person that stays more with like the clinically indicated usage of it. Yeah. Um, because there's an appropriate time and place for these kind of things. So if you've, you know, played a collision based sport and have had a lot of brain, issues, you know, these are people who can go in for more than 40 sessions and they're sometimes they're being followed over time. You can do your 40 and then wait a year, a couple of years, see how you're doing clinically. So mm-hmm. it's all evolving research. Mm-hmm. But I will say I was I was impressed to see the changes that it could make using brain imaging. I mean these are measurable changes that are consistent over time. And it's really because you're growing new blood vessels. So that's always been one of the reasons why I really liked it. And it also helps to mobilize stem cells in your body. They will go to wherever they are needed, which is why it's used in wound healing. Mm -hmm. Um, Many times have gone, you know, people have gone in to accelerate wound healing, but you need the prescription for it. So the places where people are going in, where you don't get a prescription written Mm -hmm. by a clinician, I don't, I'm not quite sure yeah, how that great. works or what the, yeah. Yeah. Or so if it's working. People exactly to know. Cause I know that, you know, I go to these conferences on longevity, et cetera, and these people are selling devices for the home. So I guess it's just to be aware. I've, I've had people that I've worked with that are like, should I spend 60 grand to put one of these things in my home? You know, it's interesting because a lot of times we're using these with the athletes that have mm-hmm. played the collision-based sports and are really wanting to help restore and repair their brain function. I remember speaking to a guy who was, um, I think he was an MMA fighter and he had one in his garage. 
Mm-hmm. Um, this is, I think, when we were still doing our research, so I was talking about, it, I was fascinated. And he goes, yeah, I've had one of these things in my garage for 10 years. <laughs> and I would go in it and use it. He's a fighter. So they learn, I mean, when you're in these sports where you're taking mm-hmm. impacts to the brain, I think you're, and you're not Aware. feeling great, right? Yeah. You're like, wait a minute, how do I protect myself and take care of myself? And I remember he's like, he was cognitively, cognitively proficient, was really thankful. His brain was okay. And he attributed it to his, his chamber that he had in his, in his garage. And I'm like, <laughs> oh, okay. So I, I'm not going to rule anything out. Like, yeah. my, you know, I'm very open-minded, you yeah. know, as long as it's, safe. I mean, there's things that can happen in these chambers, right? They're highly explosive. Like, you know, it's a hot, it's high pressure oxygen. Like I've, you know, explosions can happen. Yeah, They can happen and they have had happen. They have happened to people I know who have been in them. And it's so it's (laughs) when you put, when you put oxygen at very high pressure, um, you know, you have to be very careful. So, and also, you know, for certain people, there's contraindications to going into these chambers. Um, if you've had cataracts or things uh, with your eyes, because it's the high pressure and it can actually help, it could damage the, the vessels around the eye. So you also, you, you want to be mindful going yeah. into these chambers. This is why you require a prescription. Like, <laughs> get, a make sure that yeah. it's appropriate for you. Mm-hmm. Um Mm-hmm. But again, yeah. I'm I'm like this with everything from the supplements you take, make sure they work with your medications. Because as you said in the beginning of our conversation, you drank three liters of Green you know, your your tea yeah. for several days in a row and then you were loopy. And it's like, yeah. you know, we're sort of we have like a set point that we're used to being at. And when we start to change that, we want to make sure there's a medical professional or somebody who knows what we're doing to follow through. And exactly to take care of us as well. So Kristen, let's say someone is um, keen to know where they are in their brain health Mm -hmm. status. What are, tests, right? Because it's not a typical test that you go to see your, you know, annual doctor's visit and they say you should do a brain scan, right? So what is something you would recommend people ask for? And from what age would you think it's important to ask like what type of brain health tests are available? Yeah, that's a good question because it depends on where you go. So it's if somebody lived in the United States and they wanted to go to the Amen clinics, they do brain optimization all of the time. And there are standardized neuropsychiatric assessments and cognitive assessments that can be done. And even simple quantitative EEG just to look at how the brain is functioning, which is mm-hmm. relatively inexpensive and you're not exposing your brain to potential radioactive um, uh chemicals, right? When, because sometimes when you do these scans, like a brain spec scan, you do have to uh, have a radioactive tracer to be able to see what's going on in the brain. So those are things that one has to think about. But getting back to your question, um, you can, there are tests available that can be done online. I mean, for certain people I work with, I have a test that I send out to people that can be done annually just to assess how is your brain functioning. Is that the it looks at your brain across 12 different. Okay. It's not the market. No, it's, it's, 
No, no, no. Oh, did you say mocha? Mocha, yeah, mocha, yeah. Mm-hmm. Are you talking about mocha? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, mocha. No, this is more um, assessing different domains, like your different cognitive domains. It okay. usually takes people about 40 minutes, and I can mm-hmm. see what's going on, and it's adjusted to um, a normative database. And so that's something you know, you can have that done every year. You can have, you can go to your neurologist and say, Hey, I would like to have my brain evaluated. And, you know, there are different batteries of tests that can be done. Mm -hmm. Um, it's more about finding a location, right? So I was saying the aiming clinics is one location. You know, I work with people and I have a certain test that I use for people. Mm -hmm. Uh, a neurologist is going to have their specific battery of tests, Mm -hmm. but I think we're, we're in an environment now where brain health is an important topic. Um, and I would really advise somebody might go to a neurologist and they'll, they'll say you're perfectly healthy. You don't need a brain health evaluation. And I would say, we'll find another neurologist then, or, you know, or reach out to me because I do feel like it's important, even if you just want to have the baselines on file. Mm-hmm. You know, most people are probably going to perform well on a MOCA test unless you start to show signs, mm-hmm. right, of clinical symptoms. And mm-hmm. really, you and I are more in the space of optimizing brain health and taking what we have and making it better. And that's mm-hmm. going to be, to be able to do that, you have to find people, like I said, like myself or, you know, but yourself, you know, people who are really more forward thinking in this space. Um, and you can even ask your general practitioner, believe it or not, like, you know, people are picking their own batteries of tests and realizing this is something that people want. Mm-hmm. Now, if you've had a brain injury and want to take a look at your brain, I do highly recommend, you know, getting a baseline test. Or if you have a child who's going to play a collision-based sport, uh, I would recommend having a cognitive test at the beginning of the season um, mm-hmm. and maybe a baseline EEG just to see how their brain is functioning. And then after they have an impact, you could do a follow-up. But again, I, I acknowledge that this is very forward thinking and not everybody is um, at that space yet. Yeah. But I think it's just very helpful for people to realize that. I know when I spoke with Dale, he said, you know, from the age of 50, you should be having a cognoscopy. <laughs> he was saying like once a year. I um, agree with him. I yeah. And I might even say 40, but I agree with Dale a hundred percent. He's absolutely yeah. right. You know, and I know they have a clinic and, and they do this sort of work. So mm-hmm. um, I think people have many options, you yeah. know, if they want to look into their brain health, they can start with, you know, people that might be covered under their insurance. That's why, you know, I start like, let's do the basics. Like if your insurance carrier will allow you to go to your GP or your neurologist and say, I'm really interested in brain health. Can I do a basic um, cognitive assessment? Mm -hmm. And if they don't have something that would work for you because they, they're like, you're cognitively normal. Mm -hmm. If you take this exam, you're not, you know, you don't need to take this exam yet, then find somebody else, like reach out to me, reach out to Dr. (laughs) Bredesen, reach out to the aiming clinics, reach out to you. There's places that are equipped to be able to do this for people. Mm -hmm. But if insurance can cover it, if insurance can cover it and you can just do it annually right through your doctor, all the better. So I'm (laughs) I'm all about, you know, being financially prudent Mm -hmm. and resourceful. 
Kristen, what's your vision for optimal brain health? Like what needs to happen? Where does the world need to be to get to an optimal brain health society? Uh, well, I think to start is just to think about taking care of it the way we take care of our body. Mm -hmm. That's truly, that's the vision, right? You People understand the importance of going to the gym um, to maintain their physical health and their, their muscles, right? But we know the importance of resistance training, especially as you get older, you want to make sure um, your body is built up to be strong and your heart is built up to be strong. Mm -hmm. Now we want to just add the brain to it. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and truly going to a gym and building up your body is building up your brain. So that is one step. Most people don't realize they're actually helping their brain in, in many ways. Mm -hmm. um, but to be thoughtful about everything, the things that you're thinking, the, the actions that you're taking every day. I mean, we didn't even get to the mental health piece about taking mm -hmm. care of your brain health, right? The, the people that we keep around us and, um, yeah. you know, sort of managing our day-to-day -day emotions. That's a whole nother piece. Uh, and that's, that's sort of the side that's effect correct. of taking great, great care of your brain health is you're actually going to be sort of more mentally fit and healthy. Yeah. I mean, I just even to touch briefly on it with, um, you know, mental health, I guess is a big topic, right? But just with, you were saying a deteriorating brain and with aging comes then the anxiety and, and other, um, symptoms as yeah. well. But, um, you know, what role is stress having on, on the whole expediting degeneration and what people really focus on. That's actually like a whole other discussion. It's a whole other book. I feel like I need to round write because <laughs> it is round three because it's, well, it's funny. We all go through stress. And I think one of the, um, the benefits of aging is you learn how to be better at emotionally regulating, um, yourself and being able to manage stress, knowing when to say when, or when to say no, or when to walk away, when to, um, walk away from a job that's too stressful, you know, how to pivot and change your life so that it is, um, brings you greater ease. Um, because life wasn't meant to be hard. We just went through a pandemic. Many of us lost family and loved ones. And those are traumas that could be, with us indefinitely. So I, it's funny. It's like, I don't even want to gloss over this topic because it's so important. And, you know, just from a biological perspective, you know, we say stress causes an increase in cortisol, elevated cortisol in the body chronically, right? Over, over time, um, can help shrink certain regions of the brain. So, the area of the brain called the hippocampus, we've been talking about ad nauseum in this podcast, has a lot of glucocorticoid receptors. So when we're stressed, um, the cortisol binds to receptors in the hippocampus and can shrink it. It binds to receptors in the frontal lobes and your brain can shrink that area. So the high stress levels are just correlated with, you know, brain shrinkage. So the bigger question is how do we help um, calm our central nervous system. And what's really exciting, and I mean, we're seeing all kinds of great science-backed research to show the benefits of having a meditation practice, having a yoga practice, having a breathwork practice. And if you're not into any of that, because some for some people that is not their jam, um, then you can go to, sometimes it's even listening to certain music right? 
being out in nature, taking calming supplements like GABA, which we've talked about. This is where I love supplements because you can actually use them to help calm the stress. Um, you know, we can use neurofeedback like I've talked about before, where it's a non-pharmacological approach to calming the networks in our brain so we can more easily emotionally regulate and, and protect our brain health. So I, um, stress is a big topic. We're always going to have it. <laughs> uh, so it's, it's how do we learn? Yeah. Like how do we learn to just be more peaceful, more peaceful with the choices that we've made. I mean, somebody could listen to this podcast and feel stressed because they might have to change, feel like they have to change a lot. Um, but I would say, no, what you have to do is that there's probably small changes that can make a, a very meaningful and impactful difference in your day-to-day life. What I've seen from brain imaging studies is that most people walking around today have very low blood flow in their brain, right? They wouldn't know it. Um, and it's one of the reasons why I wanted to write the book is I was like, oh, more people could use improved perfusion to the brain. Um, And why do they have perfusion deficits? It can be, again, for many of the things we talked about, exposure to toxic mold, too much alcohol, um, side effect of chemotherapy, right? Sometimes certain drugs can do that to our brain. Um, We've had a stroke. We've had traumatic brain injury. We played collision-based sports and have like little mini, mini injuries to our brain. I mean, there's a myriad of things, just being human and living in this world, you know, it kind of, puts a little bit of an assault on this organ and nobody looks at it. Um, You know, understandably so like, you know, unless you're in my field or you're in neurology or neurosurgery or neuroscience, you're not looking at your brain. So we're kind of saying, Hey, it's kind of cool to look at your brain and you might want to think about it. And if you can, it's important. Um, And even if you don't look at it, right. If somebody's, listening to this podcast, because most people won't ever get a brain scan unless they, um, they have suspected you know, neurological issue. Um, I would just say, think about the daily habits. Again, it's why I wrote the book. It's the things that you teach, like the daily habits that keep the blood flowing to the brain. Um, that's really, I think what's going to help people in the long run. And, you know, I know you were asking me about managing stress, you know, I think that's something we're, we're all going to try to perfect, <laughs> right? Yeah, and you listed some beautiful modalities, right, with that breathwork practice. And I think that's such a key word. It's a yeah. practice. It's just doing it regularly. There's no right or wrong, be it breathwork or meditation or yoga or walking in nature, right? The beautiful grounding. It's it's kind of going back yeah. to what people did before, you know, we didn't have those, those cell phones. <laughs> what, how about, how, how did our, yeah. how did our grandparents live to a hundred? Yeah. You know, and I don't know that they were doing breath work and or my, yoga. My Irish grandfather smoked and like, we still couldn't believe he made it to 94, you know? And <laughs> but he was, but you know what? He was probably out with his friends, socially mm-hmm. engaged, family, like, yeah. like to take this conversation full circle back to Dan Butner and living to a hundred. I think um, you know, really it's about living a joyful, happy life. Like we've thrown out so many different approaches today in this podcast. No one is perfect. Try, you can try one that sort of resonates with you. You know, we're learning more like 
you know, the more of them they do, they're probably going to have more of a synergistic effect to help support your brain over time. Um, I think the most important point to get out of this is you've got a lot of options and there's a lot of us out here with resources that can help for those who are curious and, you know, want to know more and, you know, are like, wow, how do I take care of my brain? I never even thought about it. Or they might be listening and they're a former firefighter or, you know, there's somebody who's been in a profession where they've been exposed to toxic substances or they've, uh, like I said, or a police officer where there's traumas 24 seven, like, oh, I never even thought maybe I should look at my brain and, you know, do something to help calm it down. And, and, and bringing this also full, full circle, I brought Oscar in here at the beginning, like, you know, as my dad aged, um, he got into horses and riding horses and would just go out you know, to the barn and hop on the back of a horse. And he was so happy, even with his Parkinson's, he would be on the horses, you know, those animals and animals in general, you know, you read the literature, you can help unravel PTSD just by putting somebody on a horse, right? Pete, it's, they're, they're now being used in therapy for PTSD and autism and, you know, Again, these are things that, you know, they're, they're easy to do. It's not about going into a clinic. It's about, um, being in nature, being connected with our animals. Um, I don't know. It, it, it can be that simple. Like, I think maybe that's the, that's sort of like the, the point I wanted to, to make. Like, if you want to go into everything, we've got a lot of fun things that are available that can help support your brain health. But if you're, a, like it simple and you don't want to go into a chamber, you don't want to go in a hyperbaric oxygen chamber and, you know, you don't, you're not the person who wants to practice meditation. You need it to be simpler. You can do that too. Yeah. Go to nature, yeah. etc. It's available. Yeah. Kristen, you're such a wealth of knowledge and um, experience. As are you. Thank you so much. No, it's, uh, as you know, I adore speaking with you all the time. Um, but if people are interested in finding more about what you're up to, obviously you're, there's Kristen's book, which I recommend everybody read. It's really, really phenomenal. It's beautifully written Aww. for everyone to understand. There's so many practical tips and insights in there. So that's Biohack Your Brain, available, I think, on Amazon and, and pretty much everywhere. Where can people follow you and, and what you're up to, Kristen? Well, first of all, I just want to say thank you for having me on your podcast. It's always a delight. You're such a beautiful, like bright, shiny, like kind, mm -hmm. compassionate person doing amazing work in this world. And really mm -hmm. you're shining such an important light on what people can do to support their health and longevity. And I just love you for that. Um, if people want to reach out and have questions, they can go to my website at drwillemeyer.com. I'm sure you will leave a link uh, for people to access that because spelling my name. Is. Yeah. It's, that's, it's a lot for people. Um, I know. I am, <laughs> With yeah, I'm, I know. <laughs> I, I'm like, I'm available, you know, to address any questions you have and, uh, you know, would be more than happy to support your listeners in any way possible and, and encourage okay. them on their brain health journey, wherever they at, wherever they are at. Um, to go to the website, you know, the book is just another resource that's available and written. Like you said, it's written for the general public. It's not 
a heady brain book. It's a very sort of action oriented brain book. And I'm glad you liked like it. Thank a you. heady brain book. No, it, it's yeah. really phenomenal. I've recommended so many people as well. Um, Aww, and it just breaks you. it down because I think it's true. It's like people focus on their body. They go to the doctor, they have their ears and their eyes and their nose and their lungs checked and, you know, their blood yeah. pressure, but like who's actually looking inside our brain, which we know is so important on so many levels. So if for everyone listening, thank you for coming this far because our conversations tend to <laughs> be long winding. So well yes. done. And hopefully you are inspired and empowered to take your brain health back into your hands to speak to the right people and practitioners and, and to get going to maintain good cognitive health as your father had Parkinson's, my mother with her dementia, and it's avoidable diseases if we catch them on time. So Amen to that. Yeah. It, it, they yeah. are avoidable. And you know what? And you know what? If you are one of those people that have them, you know, there are still things that we can do to support you. That's, yes. that's also the other thing to note. You know, you're mm -hmm. not alone. As I, as I say, no brain left behind. Oh, beautiful. Kristen, thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure of, yes. as always, to speak with you and have you back on again. Thank you so much. Oh, so much fun. Thank you for the honor and the pleasure of speaking with you as well. We only did, what, two hours this time? Exactly. We were two two hours in a bit. <laughs> <laughs> okay, perfect. <laughs> thank you, Claudia. Thank you.